Well, we're back in the book of Romans this morning, and we're still in the early chapters, still in the introduction. In fact, we'll be there a few more weeks, because there are actually two introductions that Paul gives us. He gives us a formal introduction, and then he gives a more personal introduction that is different from virtually every other book that Paul writes So we're going to continue in that. It's pretty rich, so we haven't been in any hurry to get through it. So those of you that have been gone for weeks and weeks, we're only in verse (laughs) 4. And I'll give you a little overview of where we've been as well. The setting of, obviously, this letter is in a city that was the center of everything in the Roman Empire. It was the capital Largest city, somewhat cultural center, pretty much everything else. There was Athens that was more of an intellectual center, but you had a lot of intellectual things going on in Rome as well. Just a couple of slides to remind you of our introduction, the Colosseum there, and where the Gendrons are not here today. They are recently back from Rome, and he said that it's held the Colosseum, what did he say, 50,000? So it's comparable to stadiums of our day, larger than Lobo Stadium, or holding more people anyway. So a reflection of the importance of that, at least archaeologically. Now, Colosseum was built after the time of Paul, but very, very early, close to the first century. And there's a lot of uh, monuments and arches memorializing different things. This one also was built after the first century, memorializing the uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. by Titus. And I showed you some slides of the relief inside of that that showed the transporting of articles, or the menorah, other things from inside the temple after the destruction and not only of Jerusalem, but of the temple, kind of memorializing that whole event. So we're looking at the introduction, which is through verse 17. And the first part is a formal introduction for seven verses. And these are all seven verses. And as I've been saying, the font is small because we study sentence by sentence. And this is the whole sentence. And when we started in verse 1, I gave you an overview of the whole sentence because in order to understand context and understand anything within the sentence, it's good to have an idea of what the sentence is all about. And most sentences have a subject and a verb, and if you know the subject of a sentence and the verb, you have the essence of that sentence. In this case, I've said that it's not unusual to not even have a verb in some sentences. So sometimes you have to supply one. And in this case, it goes all the way to about verse 7 before you would expect a verb in a normal Greek sentence. And the subject, obviously, is Paul. And Paul is sending something to a group of people or wishing something or bestowing something, and verse 7, to all, this is what he's bestowing, to all who are beloved in God, in Rome, called as saints, and what he's bestowing is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything in between, verses 1 through 7, 
is just leading up to the the verb, you might say, that you would supply in that. And what he does at the beginning, if you look at your outline sheet, I've divided it into seven parts. The first part, verse 1, Paul introduces himself, tells us three things about himself. He goes from one extreme, giving the attitude that he had, and we developed that and looked at that same attitude that we should have, because we are also called bondservants. So we should have a humble attitude available to God, regardless of what we may have planned. We should first consult, what do you want me to do, Lord? And that's the attitude that Paul had. Bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. So he gives the other end of the spectrum. The highest office in the first century, in terms of the church, was apostleship. So Paul identifies himself as an apostle, not one of the twelve, we talked about that, but with all of the authority and weight that comes with apostleship. So one end of the spectrum and then all the way to the other end. And then also he includes set apart for the gospel, and now he's talking about the gospel. This is the heart of the message of the whole book of Romans. So he wants to start off by laying out, at least briefly, the gospel. And then beginning in verse 2, we have the message, which is the gospel. So he expands on that. Which, referring back to the gospel, which he promised beforehand. So this gospel message is nothing contradictory to the Old Testament. In fact, nothing new. And we looked at the fact that the gospel message is throughout the Old Testament, particularly even beginning all the way immediately after the fall. So we looked at Genesis 3.15, where we have the what? Protevangelium. And that's the, those of you that know Latin, what? First announcement of the gospel. Proto is initial first, that idea. So this gospel is in the Old Testament, and what is it? It's promised beforehand through his prophets and his holy scriptures, and it focuses in on Messiah. And in fact, that Genesis 3.15 promises from the woman a seed that will be the one that solves this problem of sin. So the Old Testament is full of this Messiah. We have the line of him. In fact, all of the Old Testament is the anticipation of Messiah. So it concerns his son, and at the heart of the gospel message is his son. That's the message, and that's the message he's developing in uh, the whole book of Romans. So when he talks about the son, he can't leave it alone. He has to tell us a little bit about the son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That emphasizes his humanity and... That's what we looked at last time. And then we'll pick up in verse 4. He's still talking about the Son, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the the spirit of holiness. And that's where we'll begin after I finish giving you another overview here. So that emphasizes his deity. And we'll look at that in a moment. And then verse 5, after he talks about Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have, in other words, he goes back to himself, and rather than focusing on himself, now he's going to focus on the mission that he has. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So the mission involves this grace that he received, 
and the office of apostleship that he's going to utilize in order to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's the heart of Paul's mission. That's the mission. So on your outline sheet, I have messenger, message, mission, and more. So I'm using M as alliteration, as you can tell. In verse 4, without mentioning the word, do we not have a great reference to it? We'll get to that. Exactly. We do. Yep, we sure do. Paul is Trinitarian. And he oftentimes, in very important passages, will introduce the Trinity. Very good. We'll look at that as well. I've got a whole slide on it. So, the mission involves Paul, who received apostleship. The heart of it is reaching out to Gentiles. And then ultimately, all of this and all of his mission is for his namesake. In other words, ultimately, everything that we should be doing is for God's glory. So that's part of the mission. And he has to outline kind of the focus of the letter. The mission involves the Romans. So verse 6, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. And that transitions into the members, verse 7. And this is what he wants to bestow. So all of that is introductory to verse 7 in terms of the grammar or in terms of the sentence. To all, in other words, these are the recipients of what he wants to send to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And then what he desires for them or wants to send or bestow grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. One sentence. Do you see how it all hangs together? And the last part there, after the membership, had to find another M, munificence, which is like blessing that he wants to bestow. Jenny. I just wanted to say, I, I thought it was interesting that you know, we're called of Jesus Christ. Everybody is called to Jesus Yes. Christ. Now that we've accepted that call, we're called. And we're going to draw that application if we get that far today. Exactly. There's lots of applications that apply to us in the 21st century. Very good. So that's the first seven verses. And we've gone through the first three, so let's pick up from there. We saw the messenger, verse 1. We saw the message. We're actually in the middle of it. Verses 2 through 4. It's promised in the Old Testament, verse 2. The content of it is the gospel. That's the content. And the focus of the gospel is the son, concerning his son. That's in 3 and 4. And verse 3 focuses on his humanity. We looked at that. In the flesh, related, he's... Fully human, and verse 4, he is fully deity as well. His deity is announced or declared. So let's take a look at that. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Humanity. He has a lineage. He has parents. He has, he's a descendant of David. He fits in the line of not only the kings and the King David, but in the line of Messiah. And you can trace his lineage all the way back to that seed of that first woman in Genesis 3.15. Verse 4, who was declared, in other words, all can know. There's plenty of evidence that testifies, that declares without any doubt. In fact, one of the most evidential historical events is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can make a case that would 
be settled in a court of law. And remember, the book of Romans emphasizes this idea of legal issues, legal terms. I gave you that in the introduction. In a court of law, if you brought all of the evidence to bear concerning the resurrection, this is one of the most testified or evidential events of all of world history, the resurrection. So it's declared, or Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So he has to include that. And what does it declare? It declares that Jesus is God. That in fact, he's not an ordinary human being. Fully human without sin, but very unique and very different. So he's declared with power by the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection is the heart of the gospel. And if you study the book of Acts, the resurrection of Christ is one of the main messages that the early church proclaimed. And it was the basis for them and their, and their ability to be able to communicate to a lost world. And it declared that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God himself. So let's take a look a little bit at that resurrection. And we might even start by noting that Paul emphasizes resurrection. And all resurrection goes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few verses related to that. Somebody read 417. Jenny and somebody else be looking up 510. Who's got that one? Eric's got it. 69. Anyone else? Ellen? 74. Mark? 834. No volunteers? Well, keep thinking about it. Jenny, you got that one first? Um, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you See the last phrase there? God who gives life, gives life to the dead. There's resurrection. Calls into being that which does not exist. Okay, calls into being that which does not exist. That's resurrection, 517. 510. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. By his life, resurrection. We're identified with his death. We're also identified with his resurrection. 6-9. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over. Okay, crystal clear relating to the resurrection of Christ. So it permeates this gospel. So it's not unusual that you find it in the... Introduction. 7-4. Therefore, my brother, you also were made to die to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Okay, so you might be joined to him who was raised from the dead. And we can skip that. You can write 834. And by the way, there's others in the book of Romans as well. I've just kind of given you a sampling through verse 8. So the resurrection is stressed, particularly in the book of Romans. Also, we need to realize that the Son himself, this testifies to the fact that he is God, in that Jesus claims that he raises himself. Who wants to look that one up a little bit longer in John's Gospel? Eric's got it. And somebody else look up 4, 24, and 25. 
I think it's clear, and there's lots of scriptures, we don't need to read all of them, but if you want some more in the book of Romans, notice these are all in the book of Romans. 4.24th of 25, let's read that one at least. That one is very important, and I think 6, 4, and 5 is very important as well. We've got 4.24.25. Jenny, you got it? 6, somebody else? Connie, why don't you do 6, 4, and 5, and I'll let you look the others up. Uh, just write them, jot them down in your notes. The sun raising himself, a very important passage. And by the way, this isn't the only one. If you want another one, I think there's another one, 219, where Jesus claims to raise himself. 1125 is another one where Jesus himself claims to raise himself from the dead. Who's got 10, 17, anything? You got that one? Or you got it? Eric? Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. He lays his own life that he may take it up himself. Keep reading. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Jesus has power to lay his own life. His crucifixion was not simply man's sin. It was not as a result of Pilate, not because of the Jews. He laid it down. He fulfilled what we talked about last last week, Isaiah 53, all of the passages concerning his death. And what does he also do? Not only does he lay it down himself, but keep reading. This command I have received from my father. Okay, he has power to raise himself up. So Jesus, and that declares him as son of God, declares him as deity. 4, 24, 25. Jenny, you got that one? I'm going to go back to 23. Okay, go ahead. Okay, now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, those who, who raised Jesus are Lord. Him who raised Jesus, the context is the Father. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions raised Jesus. Okay, and was raised. She started in 23 all the way to 25. And in relationship to us, everything in the Christian life, in fact, in chapter 6, it deals with the principles of how to live the Christian life. And in 4 and 5, fundamental to Christian living is our relationship to Christ's resurrection. We are identified with that same resurrection. Who has, Connie, did you get that one? 6, 4, and 5. Read it loud. Therefore, we were buried with you, baptism into death. We're identified with his death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the Lord Father. Just as he was raised from the dead. In other words, there's his resurrection. So also what? Even so, we also should walk in the of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the life. We are united in his resurrection. We are identified with his death. We're identified with his burial. And the power to live the Christian life is by virtue of that power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if we wanted to, we could read chapter 8, verse 11, chapter 10, verse 9, and there's others even in the book of Romans. See how this is a central part of the book of Romans, the concept of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying in verse 4 is that it, in fact, declares the Son of God, Jesus as Son. Now, he's already identified in verse 3 concerning his Son. 
And when you think of sonship in terms of Jesus Christ, think in terms of identifying Jesus with the Father. Just like your children carry your DNA, carry characteristics that are of you, your hair color, eye color, etc. They carry those characteristics reflecting your personality sometimes. Unfortunately, your sin as well. So they take on aspects of who you are. So also Jesus has all of the DNA, you might say, the spiritual DNA of the Father. He is fully God. He, in fact, has that close and unique relationship with the Father. So concerning the Father's Son, His Son, the resurrection declares Him the Son of God with all the attributes and nature of God Himself. And, as Mal uh, points out, according to the spirit of holiness. So we have the Holy Spirit involved as well. So you have the Father, His, that's the Father, Son, which is describing the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and now at the end of verse 4, according to the Spirit of Holiness. And if you missed it, it's concerning whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's the heart of not only the Gospel, but also the whole book of Romans concerning Jesus Christ. So we have the Father foreordaining all things in eternity past, including this plan, this gospel plan that makes provision for sinners. And it's first announced as the pro-evangelium, which is that first announcement of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, but it begins in eternity past in God's plan before he even created the universe. Secondly, It involves the Son as the one who accomplishes, as Messiah, the one that accomplishes that work. And it's fulfilled in the New Testament on the cross, and it's implemented by the Holy Spirit. So all of the Trinity is involved, not only in this plan, but also the details that relate to you and I in terms of how we enter in. The Holy Spirit draws us. Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit illumines us. The Holy Spirit gives us even faith to believe. The Holy Spirit then empowers us to be able to live after we are saved as a result of that plan. So it is Trinitarian. So Mal is absolutely correct. What was it a couple of weeks ago we were talking about your son as being an elder? He's an elder in his church. And Mal says, well, what does that make me? And he says, does that make me Methuselah? And I said, no, it's Malthuselah. Malthuselah. So that's his new identification, Malthuselah. I don't know. I, uh, I don't know how it ties in, but it seems to tie in. I was reading this, um, Matthew three sixteen through 7, where Jesus was baptized. And it seems like it's very, very similar. Uh, a lot of things are... Trinitarian. Yeah, well, as Jesus was back... And, and the announcement. Yes. And, and that this is, you know, it's that he's the Son of God. It's like, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, okay, the Spirit of holiness, right. um, descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven saying, this is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So it's another declaration uh, of the Son. Absolutely. So it was just really neat. And that's a... Classic Trinitarian passage. Very good. Yep. 
Now, you find that all over Scripture, by the way. And you, we're going to find it all over Romans. Paul, Paul very often uses Trinitarian. That was Matthew 3, 16 and 17. The baptism of Jesus. You see it also in Luke's account. And it talks about us being baptized with him. I mean, just through, I mean, it's... Absolutely. Very good. So, now beginning in verse 5, we're going to look at the mission. He's given us some detail concerning himself. <laughs> He's the messenger. He focused on the message, which is to bring to obedience Gentiles. He's involved in that. It starts with him as the apostolic instrument in verse 5. And then it'll focus on the obedience of faith among the, all the Gentiles. And it's for his name's sake. So, through whom we, including Paul, other apostles, other founders of the church, they have received grace. So, everything pertaining to this whole plan of salvation is by grace. In other words, unmerited faith. Nothing that we do contributes one iota to this plan that God has effected. All of it is a gift. We simply receive it by trusting. It's not baptism. It's not church attendance. It's not commitment. It's not promises. It's not deals we make with God. It's all by grace. That includes even the instrumentality God by grace has bestowed upon Paul and others, we, apostleship. The gifts, the office, everything required to establish this new entity that is brand new in terms of Old Testament ideas. God dealt with Israel. Now by grace, he has established a church, an assembly, a gathering together of people for a particular purpose. And it begins with grace and Paul's apostleship, as well as others. And Paul himself identifies himself in terms of his mission being primarily to the Jews. So the goal or the kind of the end product of this mission is the Gentiles. And that's the latter part, to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. This is his primary ministry. Jenny. We have received grace and apostleship. We, this would say Paul's apostleship. No, it is Paul's apostleship. The we are probably fellow apostles. In that context, they receive, I mean, they're not the only ones that receive grace, but the apostles are the only ones that received the grace of apostleship, you might say, as well as others that found churches. It's all by grace, if you have that gift. No, I think he's referring to he and fellow apostles. They are the instruments. And particularly, Paul is the instrument that God used to proclaim this message. In fact, let's take a look at that, because he talks about Gentiles. talks about Gentiles. The Greek word is ethnos. And by the way, that same Greek word sometimes is translated nations. So if you see nations, or if you see Gentiles, it's probably the same Greek word. And you have a corresponding Old Testament word. You know the Old Testament word, right? Goyim, very good. That word is translated nations, and in some context is translated Gentiles. In other words, all non-Jewish people. The Old Testament, the Jews developed a mentality of we are special, and they were, 
We are chosen, and they were, but it did not include the idea. Let's exclude everybody else. In fact, their mission was to be that chosen group to reach out to the rest of the nations, to be the light of the nations. Now, the Jewish nation、uh, failed, and God created in the first century a new entity with the same mission: we are to go to the nations. Great commission is to present the gospel to the nations. Mary Lee. So that word "ethnos"、uh, did that hold for the Greeks the same idea of an well, there was sort of an exclusion. We're special, and then there's the Gentiles who are not Greeks. In that culture, did that hold the same idea amongst the Greek culture? You mean? Because that's a big word. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so they had the Greeks, and then they had ethnos.、So、yeah. Sometimes the word the Greeks was used synonymous with ethnos. Sometimes it was used interchangeably, and even by Paul. So, yes, it included all those that are non-Jewish. Okay. So, in the Bible, I guess you're saying that as it's written in Greek, ethnos was always those who were not. Jewish. Yes, and it included all the other peoples, all the other ethnicities, all the other languages, all of the other nations. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis 11, God takes from this mass of people, and you have a chapter 10 is the table of nations. From that, He calls out one individual, Abraham. Promises him and enters into covenant with him that from him will be this unique nation. You might even consider it a counterculture that God will use in order to reach the nations. And in essence, He is casting aside the nations. He is rejecting the world system and is going to use Abraham and his descendants throughout the Old Testament. Now. That nation was destroyed, setting the stage for the coming of Messiah, who would offer salvation to them. The Jewish people rejected the Messiah, and God said, or Jesus said, He would build His ecclesia, His assembly. It would be very unique. It would include both Jew and Gentile. But Paul's mission was primarily to the Gentiles, and we'll see that. Beginning with his very calling, chapter nine records his conversion, and shortly after his conversion, God reveals to him that he's going to be a special instrument to the ethnos. Who's got that one? Let's read that one. Let me put them all up here. This calling is in, is is a general calling, Romans one thirteen, but Acts nine fifteen. Why don't you get that one, Jenny? Why don't you do one thirteen, Jeremy? And somebody look up. Well, we don't even need to look these up for the sake of time. I'm just going to show you. You can jot them down, but essentially, it's reiterated throughout Paul's missionary journeys. Jenny, Acts 9:15. Remember, this is immediately after the conversion of Paul, where God, in a vision, reveals Paul's mission. Go ahead. The Lord said to him, "Go, for he has chosen to bear my name with them." Okay, the Gentiles. And kings, referring to Gentile kings, that's his mission. 
And it's reiterated to him in other places as well. Romans 1.13, Jeremy. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. As among the rest of the Gentiles. In other words, that's the focus of his ministry. And he wanted to minister to those in Rome as well. In 14, it's like, I am under obligation, both yes. to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and And there he uses barbarians as synonymous with the Gentiles in that context. Very good. First missionary journey. The emphasis, and if you check it out, 13, 46 through 48, Paul basically, he goes to the synagogue first, and overall he's rejected by the synagogue, and at that point he turns to the Gentiles. Because the gospel must go to the the Jewish nation first. And then once he's rejected, now he goes to the Gentiles. Now it's not that he was disobedient. It was in God's order. It's to God's nation. And then when they reject it, then he goes out to the Gentiles. So 1346-48, first journey. And we have something similar in 18.6 on the second journey. First journey... Gentile territory, primarily amongst the Galatians. Now, 13, 46, and 48 is at Antioch. So he's rejected by the Jewish community in Antioch, and now he's going to go to Lystra, to Iconium, to Derbe. These are all Gentile lands in uh, Galatia. Acts 18, 6, that's Corinth, very pagan, very Gentile. Second journey to the Gentiles. Third journey, Acts 19.10. Again, he's out in Gentile territory. And if you read the context of all of those, those are Gentile lands. And that was his ministry. And you could, I, I could give you just more verses as well, but I wanted to emphasize kind of the big picture. Three missionary journeys, and you might even see later on, after the book of Acts, Paul goes on at least another missionary journey. And you pick up bits and pieces from uh, the pastoral epistles. And Paul there is ministering at Crete. He's ministering Ephesus, other locations. These are all Gentile locations. And he mentions other cities as well, other locations. So Paul is intent on ministering to the Gentiles. The ultimate goal is what? For his name's sake. So all of this is ultimately bringing glory to God. That God not only foreordained this whole plan, but in time, beginning in Genesis 3.15, began to implement the restoration of mankind after the fall that leads through a genealogy through one man that God calls out of the nations, Abraham, He enters into covenant. That covenant sets the parameter for all of the rest of world history. Through that nation, God is working to bring about not only a Messiah that would be fulfilled in the first century, and that plan, as it unfolds, continually brings glory to God, and ultimately that Messiah dies on the cross for the sins of the world. And that's not the end of the story. He's raised from the dead. And that's what we have right in this paragraph, or this sentence, which you could consider a paragraph as well. 
and it's all for his glory. And our salvation should glorify him as well. Our life should ultimately, that should be our purpose for life, to glorify him. Everything should be directed for his glory. And that's what he has in this passage. And then we have a comma, so the sentence doesn't end. And it includes specifically the Romans as the recipient, at least of the grace that is contained in the book of Romans. And verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You also are the called. And that's about as far as we will get today. I'd like to develop this idea, and let me just introduce it to you. But the called includes the Romans, but by way of application, if you do a word study on the word that is there, that word relates to you and I as well. We have a calling. And I think the main application that we can draw from this passage is to identify individually what is my calling. And we'll look at what our calling is in general in order to begin to identify what our calling is specific. And each of us individually has a calling. Eric, for example, is relate to us a little bit of his calling to people that are incarcerated, prisoners. That's part of his calling, his unique calling. And God has equipped him and given him, given him all of the gifts that he needs to minister in that environment. Everyone else has a particular calling as well. Now, we'll look at the general, and from that, you can draw principles in terms of, of yourself. So let me just outline it, and then next week we'll focus on this and hopefully conclude the, the sentence. So, divine calling, and this is just the product of my word study, if you will. If you study the words related to calling, and I should have given you the Greek word, kaleo is the, the root word. And by the way, I think I mentioned last week, I, I mistakenly mentioned that the word set apart occurs three times. That was a mistake. I had this idea here. It's the word calling occurs three times in verses 1 through 7. Paul has a calling. The Romans have a calling. You and I have a calling. It occurs three times. I'll let you identify it, and I'll show you next week. But it deals with what we might describe as God calling. What is the idea here? And first of all, I think... In the passage, a focus is those who are called. So if you broaden it and look at other passages where the word occurs, you're going to see there's a variety of people that are called, very specifically. And just over very quickly, and we'll look up these next time, there's a general calling. Christ even is called out of Egypt, it says. So there's a calling. The Trinity is involved. And Jesus Christ is called as well. Old Testament saints, referring to one in Hebrews 1.11. Churches, <clears throat> and uh, Romans 6 and 7. The Romans are called. They have a calling. I think Grace Church has a specific calling that God can use this body in a unique <clears throat> way. Any church, other churches in the city, have a unique calling. And then we have the early disciples. They definitely were called. And you see that Jesus calls them individually, by name, for a particular mission that each of them had. 
and it also translates into you and I individually as well. And most of it is by way of application that we can draw from passages like Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.30. We'll look at those in a little bit more detail next week. just want to give you an introduction here to that concept because it's very important. So we'll stress it again. And we'll look up all of those next time. So there's a divine calling, including us, those called. We have a description of that calling in several passages. We'll look at some of them. And thirdly, we'll look at the particulars. In other words, what are we called to? And I'd like to develop that as well, looking at some more other passages that uh, have calling as part or uh, the word that is translated calling. And by the way, there's three words that are involved here. The basic word is kaleo. And then the word that is in this context is not kaleo, but it's it stems from that root. And it's primarily a noun, and it's used in other contexts. We'll, we'll look at that. So let's close at that point. And now you got to come back next week, Eric. <laughs> Delay your travels. Here's a closing question, and you might carry it over to next week. What is your personal specific calling? Each of you has one. Who wants to close? Bob. Father, we do thank you for the incredible news of your gospel it's brought to the world and to specifically. Thank you for the study of it. We ask that you will give us grace to live out calling that you put up, but even this week, by looking to you and drawing this wellspring of you. Amen.